In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, um, does anyone remember what we studied last week, first two chapters of Nehemiah? Who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah was the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, who is the king of Persia. Okay. And Nehemiah hears from his brethren that um, the walls of Israel are broken and everything is looking really bad. And so he prays and fasts for months. Um, and at one point looks very sad in front of the king. And the king questions him, why are you sad? And he explains. And then he is... Uh, ready to give an answer to the king to grant a request that it seems he was praying about a lot okay very good all right and then uh, nehemiah goes travels back to jerusalem and then what does he do and then he goes and he looks at the area in secret with a few other people he checks to see what needs to be done and then later he groups people together and tells them the work that that they want to do and then he has some people going against him something like that yes right very good so the local governors that are in that region they don't want the the the, the jews to rebuild the walls and reestablish their civilization and their society um, and so they are they're going to be the the primary um, antagonists the opponents um, to nehemiah and the people who are with him okay very good so um Today, we're going to start speaking about the beginning of the construction uh, process of the wall. And so here's this nice diagram, which we'll try to um, kind of, I'll point out some of the things that are going to be mentioned in the chapter, right? And I'll, but I'll speak more, more specifically about each one as we get to it in the text. But there's a gate here in the north called the Sheep Gate. Uh, can you see that red pointer? Um, the Sheep Gate. And then next to it, there's a tower called the Tower of the Hundred. Uh, the Tower of Hananel, over here, the Fish Gate, okay, um, and then over here, this is called the Old Gate, okay, the Broad Wall, and you scroll down here, you have Tower of the Ovens, these are all things that I'm mentioning because they're going to be mentioned in the text, so just to kind of get an idea of where everything is, um, the Valley Gate, okay, uh, the Pool of Siloam, which is like we had mentioned before, this is the pool where the man born blind uh, washed his eyes, okay, the King's Garden is also mentioned. Um, the Dung Gate, also called the Refuse Gate, is down here on this side of the city. There is the Fountain Gate. Um, these stairs here that are descending, I think, are also is also mentioned, descending from the city. Um, the uh, the Water Gate is up here. Water Gate. Uh, uh, Horse Gate. Uh, East Gate. And then this is called the inspection or the muster gate uh, up here. So you can see kind of an idea of the way that Jerusalem is laid out um, and, and where the temple is, right? The temple mount and the temple are here and all of these gates um, around the walls, okay? So this is what was at the time of Nehemiah and, and the, 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 the temple from, be from before, the city from before, it was destroyed. This is how it was. And so they are now in the process of rebuilding uh, re rebuilding everything again and so he's going to mention all of these different names and places um, and this is actually one of the most um, detailed descriptions in the Old Testament uh, about the topography of the city of Jerusalem so you can kind of see 
um, where everything is, uh, and it's going, you know, uh, he, he describes everything's going to happen. Now he's going to start at the Sheep Gate in the north, and everything that's described is going to be going counterclockwise um, all the way around, okay? Um, he, because, because Nehemiah saw that the, that the wall was in a very bad shape, and also that because there were opponents to what he was doing, he wanted the work to be done quickly, like very quickly. So what he did is he broke up the the work into 42 groups. And again, we go back to the idea of Nehemiah being like a very organized person. Um, he, he broke the work into 42, 42 sections, and each group was going to work on a separate section all at the same time. Okay, so everything is going to be built simultaneously um, and breaking it up into these 42 sections. Um, one of the things that we notice here is that in the, in the, in the book that Ezra was not mentioned, um, but, but he was probably working with the priests. So the, we'll see that at the, in the north, the sheep gate, uh, because the sheep gate is where the sh they would bring in the sheep for the slaughter to the temple, um, the priests were the ones actually responsible for rebuilding this and so um, it's said that it's likely that Ezra, who was still alive at the time, was one of the ones there and helping with the priests uh, and building of, of this um, sheep gate. So, so there's a few things that we'll notice. One is, like I said, the priests are working too. It's not just uh, like the lay people. Um, uh, there are many people who came from outside Jerusalem to help with the construction. So it wasn't just the people who are living in Jerusalem, but people who are living around in the, in the area. Um, and uh, the, the, the city was divided into um, like several districts or several divisions, um, and five in all, okay? Um, people of all professions took part in, 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 in the rebuilding, including goldsmiths and perfumers and traders, and we said the priests and other people, so like everybody, uh, the Levites as well were among the workers. Um, even the women and children also worked, right, in, um, in restoration of the wall. And also, like musicians and singers, and, and uh, who are who are for the temple, uh, which are called the Nethanim. The Nethanim are like the class of people whose job is to work in the temple. They also uh, worked in rebuilding uh, the the wall. Okay. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Okay, so the first group mentioned were the priests, um, and they were responsible for the first one, the first gate that we mentioned in the north, which was called the Sheep Gate. Why is it again, was it called the Sheep Gate? Because that's where they brought in the sheep, right? And that was very close to, if you remember here in this picture, here, very close to the temple, because that's where the sheep were going to be used, right? So that, that tower, the, the, this uh, Sheep Gate right here, um, that's that's where they would um, they would enter. Okay. Um, the tower of the hundred, which is right to the west of that, was a tall tower, and it was named that. Um, it's believed that it's one of three things: either the tower is a hundred cubits tall, um, or it was guarded by a hundred people, like garrison there in that tower. Or it had like a staircase which is like had a hundred steps. So we're not sure exactly why it's called Tower of the Hundred, but but it's something related to the number one hundred. Um, and then 
even more to the west is the Tower of Hananel. Um, and both of these towers together, they protected the northern side of the city. And this Tower of Hananel is also mentioned in Jeremiah 31 and Zechariah 14. So this is not the only mention of it here, but we read about it also uh, in, in other places. Okay. So I think like the priests, maybe because this gate, so it says they consecrated the gate, right? So because this gate was the gate where the sacrifices would enter, so it's maybe that there were like special prayers that had to be said by the priests on this gate to like prepare it for the receiving of these sacrificial animals. Yeah. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built. Okay, so again, these are people coming from other cities. Jericho is another city, um, even though they did not live in Jerusalem. Um, Zakur was, was a Levite, um, who is mentioned here, that was also building. Also, the sons of Hasana built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Okay, um, so the fish gate was also on the north side of the city, but west of the sheep gate. Okay, why do you think it was called the fish gate? That is where the, the, the merchants, the traders, the fishermen um, who came from, so uh, the land of Tyre, Phoenicia, which is north of Israel, okay, they were, they were famous for like their seafaring people and their fishermen and whatnot. So they would be the ones, you know, fishing, and they would come to Jerusalem to trade and sell their fish, okay? And so because it's from the north, they would come from the north down into the city. Okay, so they called it the fish gate because it was so much used by the fishermen who were coming from the north, the traders who were coming to sell um, their fish. Also, this gate is mentioned in Second Chronicles 33 um, and Zephaniah chapter 1. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshalem, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their lord. Okay, so uh, mentioning other people who worked, um, but the specifically this, the Tekoites, they were from a small town called Tekoa, which was about five, th five miles south of Bethlehem. Okay, um, and uh, the it says about the people from that place, um, they came to do the work, but the nobles of that city um, did not did not work. Okay, just the the common people were the ones who worked from there. Moreover, Jehoiada the son of Paseah, and Moshalem the son of Besodiah repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Okay, so the old gate was even more west of the fish gate. So we're still toward the northern part now of the um, of the city. Okay, and it was used to travel to some nearby villages. Um, so, um, uh, the, the reason that it's believed that it's called the old gate is because it was one of the very first gates or one of the very original gates. What's interesting is, so we know the story of Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, who is the one who appeared on the scene, uh, and, and saved Lot from his captors and Abraham offered him a tithe of, uh, uh, of, uh, from him, from himself, and Melchizedek, Melchizedek offered a sacrifice of bread and wine, um, and he was he was called the king of Salem. Okay, Salem is actually Jerusalem. Okay, so at the time, the city was called Salem. 
Okay, in the old before it was called Jerusalem, and then later on actually it was called Jebus, and the Jebusites lived there. So all of them were the same city. It wasn't known as Jerusalem at the time. So it was first called Salem. Later on, the Jebusites inhabited it. It was called Jebus, and then later it became known as Jerusalem. It was a much smaller city, right? And so some people say that the old gate uh, was there in the original city, right? And that's why it's called Old, right? That's why it's called Old Gate. It's not in the Bible if you're looking it up. Uh, but uh, but but several sources that I found all confirm the same thing, that Salem is actually uh, the same city as Jerusalem. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Okay, who is the governor of the region beyond the river? Who do you think? Sanbalat and Tobiah and th them, yeah. but uh, they are the enemies of this. They don't. Li they don't live in Jerusalem. So who is the governor of the r of the region beyond the river? Well, Artaxerxes is the king, right? And right now Israel is under what, the Assyrian Empire, right? So it's like a province of the Assyrian Empire. So it has a governor that was appointed by Artaxerxes, right? And so his place, his residence, even though he wasn't there, he wasn't living there, but whenever he would come to visit, this would be his house, right? That would be like, you know, the White House uh, whenever he was there. Um, and again, the region beyond the river is referring to the Euphra Euphrates River. So it's ref referring to Persia, right? The area beyond the Euphrates is, is Persia. Um, and that was um, his, his house. So they repaired that house as well. Um, when it talks about the children of Jericho a little earlier coming to help with the work, Jericho is in Israel, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not even part of Jerusalem. So these have been the remnants of the Israelites who are in Jericho, or are they just people who are there and compassionate? No, these are probably Israelites. They're Israelites, but they're Israelites that are living because they're scattered around. Like all of Judah, right, was taken. And 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 yes, Israel, the, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken before, but um, there were Israelites scattered all throughout. So there were people who were living in Jericho that came to help with um, the effort, just like these people from Tekoa and other cities that came. Yeah. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs, and they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. So the broad wall, I had mentioned it in the image at the beginning. It's uh, that long wall on the northwest side um, of Jerusalem. Okay, This wall uh, was built by King Uzziah to confront the attacks of Joash, king of Samaria. This is mentioned elsewhere, um, this wall being built. Um, the goldsmiths, the perfumers, the traders, all of these people, um, they traditionally would dwell outside of the city. So even when the city is fully built and there's walls, the goldsmiths, perfumers, traders, they typically dwelt outside of the wall, right? So they're, they're, they're helping also with um, the construction here. And next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Okay, so remember how I said that 
Jerusalem is, is divided up into several districts. So Rephaiah was one of the rulers of um, part of this central district, right? So he was like another government official um, of that district. Next to, next to them, um, Jediah, the son of Haramaph, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbinia, made repairs. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, as well as the Tower of, of the Ovens. So the Tower of the Ovens is, again, on the west side um, of the wall. And uh, it's called the Tower of the Ovens because it was usually built, or it was it was where the baker's market was. So it would have the ovens that the bakers would use in order to do their baking. Okay, so it was called the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him was Shalom, the son of Helohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. So he's the other half, the leader of the other half. Um, he and his daughters made repairs. Um, the Shalom's daughters that are mentioned here, um, they were most probably... Uh, like, or, or perhaps they were widows um, who contributed to the expenses of the building of the wall or the sustenance of the workers and their families, and that would be one of the ways that they're contributing and making repairs. But th th they could also be like helping with the construction itself. This was the only mention of, of women contributing to the project of, of rebuilding the wall um, in this chapter. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate, they built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Um, Zenoa was another city which is 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and they repaired uh, from, from there all the way to the, from the valley gate all the way down to the refuse gate. The refuse gate, also known as the dung gate, is at the very southern tip of Jerusalem. Okay, so we started in the north. So from your perspective, we started in the north, we went west, and then we went south all the way um, on the on the western side of the wall, all the way to the tip, at the bottom. This is where we are now. Okay, so we've covered about half, or so, or maybe a little bit more than half, uh, of of the wall. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. So this refuse gate is where the trash would be dumped. That's why it's called the refuse gate on the south side of the city. And um, this man, uh, Malki, uh, Malkijah, the son of Rechab. Rechab is a famous person. Um, he's, he's mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. Um, Rechab was the name of like the, the father of a godly tribe of people called the Rechabites. Does anyone know the story of the Rechabites? It was the, the, f the, the, the man Rechab had said that no one from his descendants would ever drink alcohol or dwell in anything but tents, right? And he made this vow to God that this is what they would do, and all of his descendants abided by that vow um, to to live that way, okay? And so, so this is this is uh, one of the son son here, meaning I don't know if this would be directly his son or it could be one of his descendants um, was the leader of this district and worked on repairing this refuse gate. Shalun the son of Kolhoza, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. Okay, so this pool of Shelah is the pool of Siloam where the, the man born blind washed. Let me go back to the image here real quick because it's mentioning these three things. Um, so I want you to see it. 
So here we just mentioned the fountain gate. So here's the fountain gate, okay? And here are the stairs descending from the city of David, okay? There's the pool over here and the king's garden here, and the refuse gate is here. So all the things we just said. By the refuse gate, there's the pool and this garden, and then the fountain gate is on this side and the stairs that are descending from the city. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Bethzer, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David to the man-made pool and as far as the house of the mighty. So this Nehemiah is a different Nehemiah. It's not the, the same Nehemiah who wrote the book. He's just another man named Nehemiah. Okay? Um, and this pool that's, being, that's talked about here, this man-made pool, um, it's, uh, it's like a, a dam or a tank that was built by King Hezekiah when he was besieged um, in Jerusalem by Sennacherib, who was the, when, he, he, when the Assyrians came, Sennacherib was the king of the Assyrians. Um, when when uh, the Assyrians came and attacked the city, um, uh, King Hezekiah built this dam of water. Um, he's, it says in Second Chronicles 32, Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? So essentially, because the city was being besieged, um, the king Hezekiah wanted to stop the flow of the springs of the water so that the Assyrian army would not drink and benefit from that water. Okay, So he, he, he dammed up the water so that it wouldn't flow. And that's what this man-made pool, that's why it's called this man-made pool, here um, is, is referring to. The house of the mighty uh, was the dwelling place of David's uh, mighty men of valor that are mentioned a lot in the book of Samuel, um, speaking about like his, his, his men who are like his loyal officers um, uh, that, that always were with, with him. Um, and then later on, it was turned into a military camp or a storehouse for weapons. So that's what's here, this, this house of the mighty. After him, the Levites, under Rahum, the son of Beni, made repairs. Next to him, Hashbiah, leader of half the district of Kaliah, made repairs for his district. Um, Kaliah was a city southwest uh, of Jerusalem. So again, you have all these people who are leaders, um, whether in districts of Jerusalem or in other cities who are coming to uh, help with the repairs. After him, their brethren, uh, under Bavai, the son of Henadad, leader of the other half of the district of Kaliah made repairs, and next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. So ascent to the armory was probably like a tower at the corner of the wall where weapons were stored to protect the city. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, carefully repaired the other section from the buttress to the door of the house of Elisheb, the high priest, after him, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Elishib to the end of the house of Elishib. Elishib. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. So some of the workers of the temple, um, uh, especially the singers, they used to dwell in the countryside around the city, right? Not in the city, but around it. And, and some of them who were dwelling with them were even priests, right? And all of those people who dwelt around the city 
also came to help with the repairs. After him, Benjamin and Husheb made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Hananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Binui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Palel, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower, which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, made repairs. Um, so here when it's mentioning the king's upper house, this was probably the old house that King David dwelt in um, before, the, before the palace that was built by King Solomon. Um, and the tower that's mentioned here was a tower um, to guard the royal palace. Moreover, the Nethanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. If you remember, what is the Nethanim? What did I say the Nethanim was? The singers, right? They were all the servants of the temple. Um, but among them were the singers who were in the temple. They're mentioned in First Chronicles and Ezra as the Nethanim. Um, Ophel, that's mentioned here, was a section um, southeast uh, of the city that formed the original city of David. So because as, as time passed, the city grew. So at the time of David, the city was smaller, and then later on, more was added to the city. So Ophel was one section of the city on the southeast side that was, was there from the old city around, uh, during the time of King David. Um, the water gate, what's mentioned here, was not actually a gate to the city. It was a gate to the palace of the temple. So it was like an internal gate. It wasn't a gate you would see from the outside border of the city, but once you enter the city, there would be another gate that leads to another section of the city. That's the, the water gate. Um, and it was called the water gate because it led to the main source of water, which was, we already mentioned at the south, the main source of water for the pool of Siloam. It's called the Gihon Spring or the Gihon Spring. Um, it led to this spring. So that's why it was called the water gate because it would lead the people to the source of water of the city. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel, so this tower is on the east side of the city. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Can you guess what the horse gate is? The reason it's called horse gate. Right, so this is where the horses um, would go to drink. Uh, like they would go outside of the city uh, uh, to, to, to drink close to the temple area. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house, after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. Can you guess why it's called the east gate? It's on the east side. Sounds good. Um, after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Mushalem, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate, and as far as the upper room at the corner. Okay, So this Mifkad gate, which was, I, when I mentioned it earlier, it was called the inspection or the muster gate. This is also called Mifkad gate, um, and it's the place where people would muster. You know what mustering means? Or it's not mustered. It's like mustering. You know what mustering? Mustering means to gather. If anyone's ever been like on a ship, when when you're assigned a muster point, like a place where if there's a disaster on the ship, your group is supposed to muster in a certain place, it's like your muster point, right? So mustering means to gather. So so 
it was and 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 the the word um mifkad i'm sure i'm not pronouncing it right but it means the appointed place right the appointed place to gather so this gate is what leads up to the mount of olives and um and it's a place where the people would uh, gather to register for the temple tax right so going out that gate it would go up to the mountain right but the people would would stop there like that would be like a designated place where people would have to register for their taxes okay so there looks like the irs headquarters uh, of the city and between the upper room at the corner as far as the sheep gate the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs so we've come now all the way back around to the original point which was the sheep gate Right, and again, we said that there were 42 different stations, with separate people assigned. Right, and so again, how Nehemiah is very organized, and the way that he appoints everybody, he divided the work up into manageable chunks. He got people that he thought would be able to work in those areas, and he assigned them to work. And actually, one thing you notice is what? What's one interesting thing you notice about this? About all the names that we've seen, whose name is missing? Nehemiah. Because he was not working. Because his job was what? To oversee, right? If Nehemiah got so caught up in the details of like, okay, I have my section of wall that I have to build, his whole focus would be on that section of wall. And he would have no idea what else is happening like around the whole city. Whereas if he doesn't have that burden of having to do that work, now his focus is different. He's not just relaxing, but he's going around. He's able to travel the entire gate the entire city, and go around the whole wall, see what people are doing, what people need, are people, you know, struggling, and what's happening. Because what happens is, is a lot of times people, when they're working on a big project, and nobody comes to check on them, um, they feel like, maybe they feel abandoned, maybe they feel alone, maybe they feel resentful, maybe there's problems that they can't solve by themselves, um, and they need someone to solve it for them. Uh, maybe they need information that they don't have, um, and they start doing things with the resources that they have because they don't think, well, maybe I can have access to more resources if I asked. But instead, they're like, no, I'm just gonna, gonna just do this. I remember a story one time that I, that I read in a book. It was like, a, um, what was it? There was like a group of valets in a parking garage um, where you know they they would have to obviously go and and park cars. But the way that the garage was laid out is there was this big cement wall that was like separating the place from where they would have to pick up the cars to where they'd have to park the cars. So it had greatly increased the amount of time that was needed in order for them to travel, to walk from one place to the next. And it was ruining their efficiency. But they didn't care because in the end they're employees and they're just getting paid by the hour and it didn't make any difference to them. And then at some point somebody came and saw this and he said, well, this is inefficient and how can we make it better? And so he told the, the valets that you're going to get paid based on like your efficiency. And so what did the valets decide to do? They decided to break the wall so they could travel through the wall, right? So the point is, is that sometimes when people from like management or, or, or leadership are disconnected from the realities of the work and they don't know what's actually happening and they don't know what the people are doing and maybe the people are doing things with good intention, but maybe it's not really the best way. Maybe there could have been a better way. Or maybe, you know, we could have we could have understood this problem and fixed it in a, you know earlier. So the nice thing, again, kind of adding to the 
this dimension of Nehemiah that we learn from is his leadership, is he understands that leadership is a job in it itself, right? I, I remember reading also a book, this is like related to engineering, but it was saying like this book, this, this engineering uh, manager um, or leader, leader in engineering, he, he said, the worst things that companies do is they take the top performing engineers and they promote them to be the managers, right? Because you're taking the people who are already doing really good at what they do, and then you're removing them from doing that and you're putting them to do something that they're not good at at all. Because management is not the same as engineering. Like engineering skills that you need for doing engineering is one, you know, being very, you know, like technically minded. Whereas someone who is a manager, yeah, you have to understand technical, right? I'm not, it's not like you have no idea about it, but your primary focus is how to manage the people, how to ma maintain a team of people and have them to be focused and to be motivated and encouraged and so on and how to deal with their issues. So. This is one of the lessons we learned from Nehemiah, is that he did not build, right? His job was completely to, to observe, to interact, to, 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 to manage and oversee the entire project. And that's why something that was as, you know, as, as, as big a project as this was able to be done in less than two months, right? When all you have is individual laborers working with tools and, um, and as we're going to see, they also had weapons in their hands because they were going to be attacked. So so even that would have slowed them down, and yet they still did something. Something that people thought could never be done, right, was done in less than two months, right? That's, that's, um, that's what Nehemiah was able to accomplish, of course, through the grace of God. Any questions about this chapter before we move on? Okay. So now having presented in chapter 3 the whole plan of what everybody is doing, right, and you can see, like, the work of God in it, like in its efficiency and its, um, you know, in, in, in the way that it's conceived and in the people who are willing to work with Nehemiah in it um, and everyone was doing their part without, you know, w without uh, arguments or fighting or anything. Like everyone was doing their part. Um, so at this point, like uh, we can see that with every good work, there's going to be opposition. And, and a lot of times we see opposition as being coming from human beings because often the opposition is manifested through through what people do and what people say. But who is really the opponent of the rebuilding of the wall? It's Satan, right? So Satan is the one who is opposing this work, and maybe he is riling up certain people to be the voices who are going to oppose the work and the things that they do. Um, but really, we, we look at this as being like rebuilding this city is... Um, is is being opposed by Satan himself, and from a spiritual perspective, the city represents the human soul, right? The city of Jerusalem is like the human being, right? That is filled with the grace of God, right? Because we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and the city of Jerusalem is the one who had the temple. So it is like Satan is opposing our building ourselves, like we are protecting ourselves, we are guarding ourselves, we are growing spiritually, and Satan opposes this, right? That's why all of the struggles that we face in our life. Um, are actually increased whenever we try to get closer to God. They're not diminished. You know, the famous verse that we talk about in Sirach chapter 2 that says, you know, when you set yourself up to, to serve God, prepare yourself for temptation, right? So you, the moment that you are going to do good, you should prepare yourself for temptation, okay? Um, the other thing we learn here about Nehemiah, which is very important, is at the sign of opposition, he didn't give up. Because that's the other temptation, is like it's easy to conceive of a plan I mean, I want to say it's easy, but he conceived of a great plan and he got the people on board with the plan and he got the resources needed to execute the plan and everything looked good.
But the moment that you begin to execute something, that's when everything begins to fall apart, right? That's when you have to deal with the real life problems that happen. And in this case, one of the main problems was the opposition, right? That are going to come and say, no, we don't want you to build a wall, okay? And those people who are successful are those that do not give up when in the face of that opposition and expect that that opposition is going to come. Like sometimes we have a naive approach of things, right? And when you approach something naively, the moment that, that struggles begin to happen, you're like thrown off by it. You're like, oh, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Like even in marriage, for instance, like some people will think that marriage is going to be like this, like, like, you know, euphoric place where nothing but good all the time, right? And then when, be when problems begin to happen, people say, I was like, oh, no, maybe we need to get a divorce, right? Because it's not working. Well, you should have expected, right, from the beginning that this is going to happen and 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 already put in your mind that when the problem happens what are we going to resort to how are, what are, how are we going to solve it and so nehemiah here he had to make adjustments to his plan and he had to talk to the people and he had to you know face this right but at no point did he ever say to himself oh well maybe this isn't god's will that we build a wall or maybe we don't have the ability to defend ourselves he never g he gave in to the threats um but we'll see the way that he responded but it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. Remember who is Sanballat? He is the governor of Samaria. Okay. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? What do you think about his response here? He's mocking them. And in what way is he mocking them? Like what is he mocking? Well, he's angry because he doesn't want them to build, right? Maybe that's his true motive. As we had mentioned last time, like, Several reasons why he might not want them to build is because he wants more influence and when they begin to reestablish themselves, he's going to be diminished and all the th reasons we mentioned last time, right? But what is he trying, what is what are his words reflecting? He's, he's saying what? What they are doing is impossible, right? Impossible. Will they build it in a day? You think that you can offer sacrifices again after the city has been laid to waste for a hundred years? You think you're going to be able to to, to do all of this, right? But it's also kind of betraying something else about him, which is he's afraid because he really thinks that it's going to happen. He doesn't want it to happen. Like, you know, if there's something that you really confidently feel is never going to happen, then you're not worried about it. But because he is giving attention to it like this and he is he's angry about it like this, that means he really is afraid that it might happen and he doesn't want it to happen. But he's trying to intimidate by saying, oh, do you think you're ever going to do this? Like if somebody came to me and said, you know, like um, they're going to build a hundred-story skyscraper next door, right? I would say that's not going to happen. Like I wouldn't be worried about it. Like no, I'm not going to be concerned about it. Like it's, it's not going to happen. I don't believe it's going to happen. But if, they, if you tell me that's something that I really believe and something that's not good for me, right, then I'm going to be concerned. And maybe I will say these things. I'll say, oh, there's no way that you're going to build that. There's no way you're going to do that. But I'm really worried because I really think that there's a possibility that it might. Okay. And so you can see this like in, in him, right? Um, he sees how organized they are. He sees the, 
you know, the diligence and the leadership of Nehemiah. He sees the resources they have. He knows that they're coming with letters from the king saying that this should be done. And he's seeing how everyone is cooperating together. So when somebody looks at this, you're going to be like, yeah, this is, this is not what I expected. I didn't expect this would be possible, but it looks like it's possible. And so he's beginning now to, um, you know, not to not he's not saying the real reason that he's upset, but he is saying, you know what, this is impossible. What are you guys trying to do? There's no way you can do this. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Okay? So this is, um, this is again, more of the same, right? It's almost like they're trying to comfort themselves. You know, like, uh, uh, I'm, I'm upset and I'm afraid that they're going to build this. So, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be so weak. It's going to be so, you know, feeble. Like, even if they're able to put some stones on top of each other, it's going to just fall immediately, right? You know how sometimes we comfort ourselves about something that we don't want to be true, but it is? And we try to make up reasons why. Um, it's actually not as bad as, as, as it really is. We just try to like convince ourselves just so that we feel sad about it. This is what he's doing. It's like he doesn't want the wall to be built. He's trying to convince himself that it's going to be you know, nothing of, of importance. And so he's just saying this to himself. Okay? But we see that the thing that's really making this work succeed is, of course, that God wants it to succeed. Right? God is the one working through Nehemiah, through all of these people, to, to, to create something that no human being could have looked at and said, this is possible. You know, this is something that can happen. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Okay, so now Nehemiah, his response now to hearing the, the, these insults and these, this mockery, saying, no way you're going to be able to do it. it the, fall, the wall is going to be feeble and immediately fall down and so on. So Nehemiah's response he says, his prayer, he says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Okay? So what do you think about this prayer? know how to say it in English but uh, when they say pray on you or something like that which is like praying for their own destruction uh, as opposed to the Christian way which is to love your enemies and to well so even even like so in Romans chapter 12 for instance when God is uh, when, when God is speaking about it do not um, do not revenge right do not avenge yourself but he's saying I will avenge. Vengeance is mine, right? So what when Nehemiah, what Nehemiah is doing here is he's saying to God, like, you be the one to to protect us, right? Like turn their tur turn their plots against us, against themselves. So it's not it's not wrong what he's doing, right? This isn't wrong or to say that he's somehow being, you know, unchristian or or vengeful against them. No, he's like these are the enemies of God. Actually, these are the people that. God had asked the Israelites to kill. Like, he didn't want them to even exist in the land. One of the reasons that they fell into this whole exile and all this problem that they're in now is because they didn't listen, right? So, so but, but, but the focus here is, first of all, that the first thing that Nehemiah did is he prayed. Like, you didn't hear even him respond, right? Sometimes 
whenever we are mocked, we feel a need to respond. And the reason we are responding is because we're shaken or we're insecure, right? Because if I really didn't believe what is it that was being said about me, then maybe I wouldn't even feel offended. Again, like if somebody, if you pick my strongest strength, okay, and somebody comes and mocks me in my strongest strength, the place where I know for sure that I'm better than most people, right? It's not going to affect me. I'm be like, what is, like, okay, like you just, you don't know what you're talking about, right? But if you come and, and, and you, 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 you insult me in an area of weakness, that's when maybe I'm going to, my first reaction is going to be like self-defense. It's like, no, that's not true, this and that, you know, and I'm going to start to feel like insecure about myself and needing to like uh, defend myself even more, right? That's human nature. So here the fact that Nehemiah is not even responding at all to, to them here, but he's the first thing he's doing is prayer is, number one, he's very confident. Like he's very confident. He's not, he's not worried at all about what they're saying. You know, sometimes when we have doubts, the, the doubts of other people, when they're, when they're communicated to us, they begin to m amplify our own doubts. Like if I already think that maybe I'm not good enough in something and then I hear a negative comment about it, now I'm like suddenly thrown into like this, you know, this chaos of, of, yeah, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I can never do it. Maybe I will never succeed. Maybe this and that. Why? Because of even like relatively benign comments of others can cause that to happen to me if I'm already insecure and, and not really confident in myself. Whereas here, Nehemiah was so confident in himself, he didn't even care what they said. Like he, he knew for a fact that he was going to build a wall and nothing shook him that this wall was going to be built. But his confidence was not in himself, right? His confidence was not because I am a great leader, you know? Actually, Nehemiah had never done anything like this. You know, like he's never a project manager of anything. He was a cupbearer. He would drink wine and eat food. Like that was his job. Like he's not qualified for this. Right in terms of his career path that he had, he was not qualified for this. But God is revealing all of these talents and strengths in him through this calling of him coming here. So Nehemiah was not concerned or afraid, but he asked God to confirm his protection for them and to turn back their own attacks against them. Right. Um, uh, so 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 Nehemiah was very confident and very prayerful. Okay. Also, when he says at the end, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. What does that mean? What does that mean before the builders? In front of the builders. Because it's one thing if like the leader is confident, but now you have all these other builders. You have all these other people. Do you remember when um, we were talking about attacking the city when the Rapshaka the Rapshika attacked the city of Jerusalem. The Rapshika was like the military leader coming from King Sennacherib from the Assyrians. And when the Rapshika came to the walls of Jerusalem, they were speaking to the people in what language? Hebrew, right? And then the leaders who were representing King Hezekiah there, they told them to do what? Not to speak in, in Hebrew, but to speak in Greek. Why was that? Because the people would listen, and if they understood the Hebrew, they understood the threats that were coming against them by the enemy, and everything, all the lies that were being said by the enemy in their own language, now they were going to be shaken. So that's why they said, no, don't speak in Hebrew, but speak in Greek. Okay? So this is kind of the same thing. And a big part of intimidation like this, and we're going to see that in the end, all of this was just intimidation. Um, 
a big part of the intimidation like this is just making big empty threats, right? And this is what Satan does, is he makes big empty threats. He doesn't actually have power, right? He, 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 he appears to have power. He appears to be strong, but he's already defeated. Like, he's already defeated. But when we look at him, we're like, oh, he's scary. He's scary to us, you know, and he has power. And he's like, but he's already trampled underfoot. And, and Christ already said that we have the authority to trample him underfoot. So everything that he really does to us is all just like smoke and mirrors, right? He, he, he convinces us of things that is not true, makes us afraid of things that aren't happening, um, and, and, and makes us to lose hope, even though we have all the hope we could ever have in the resurrection, makes us to lose hope about who we are, about our future, about our life, everything, even though we have hope, right? But he convinces us that we don't have hope. And that's why we fall into despair. So here he's trying to get, this people are trying to get Nehemiah to fall into despair, but he is not. And one of the things he's praying about to God is he's saying, essentially, encourage the workers. Encourage the workers not to believe the lies that they are hearing from these men. Okay, so they also are confident. Yeah. Between uh, Nehemiah's prayer here and Christ's prayer on cross when he said, forgive them, but they don't know what they are doing. You mean because Nehemiah here didn't ask for the forgiveness of yeah. the... Well, forgiveness, forgiveness is uh, a state of mind right it's not an action necessarily but it's a state of mind meaning meaning i can if someone is my enemy and they're trying to harm me how is it that i forgive them well i can forgive them in my state of mind meaning i'm not going to judge them i pray for their salvation um if if there's something within my ability to do to help them i can do it okay um but i don't hold a grudge or anger toward them that's a state of mind but it doesn't mean i'm going to go be their friend it doesn't mean that i agree with what they're doing it doesn't mean i'm going to help them it doesn't mean that I'm going to uh, like, like give in to what they're asking, right? So here, all Nehemiah is doing is saying, like, do not allow them to succeed. Do not allow them to succeed in what they are doing, meaning they're trying to oppose the building of the wall. Do not allow them to succeed. Do not allow their words to negatively affect the, the workers um, and, and turn back their evil plot against themselves. There's nothing wrong with that, right? This is not a lack of forgiveness. This is... Um, this is self-defense, right? Self-defense. It says nothing here about, like, uh, you know, if, if Nehemiah would, you know, you know, kill them by their by his own hand or something like that, or you know, it doesn't. It's not. It's not. There's no. There's nothing here where Nehemiah is actually taking, like, steps to kill them or to attack them in any way, right? All he's doing is praying and asking for God's protection. I have a question. Hmm. If we were going to apply this prayer to our life as well, does that mean when we are serving the Lord and there is mockery to the service that we do or in the way that we live, he says that they provoked God to anger. He didn't say to us mm -hmm. or to everybody else. And so is that the perspective we should have is that if we are mocked, it's really God being mocked and not us. I mean, especially in this because... Here, what, what the people are doing is, yes, they're trying to rebuild their own home, but this is also the, the, the temple, right? This is to protect the city of God, the city that God had established. So he's seeing everything that's, that's uh, an attack on this project as being an attack directly on God, as opposed to being making it very personal, which is exactly like what you're saying. And, and that's an important distinction. Now, there are times, though, when 
maybe my enemies are attacking me in a very personal way. Um, but, but again, like any sin is a sin against God. So then he continues, so we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. So because the people were motivated, because they understood the vision of what is it they were called to do, because they believed in God and they believed in Nehemiah, they worked quickly and half the wall was built. So the entire wall was built, but at half the height. Okay. Um, and, and, the, uh, and, and this is, again, it's a testament to the faith of the builders, the motivation of the builders, because if the builders didn't believe that this was possible, then, you know, it, they, they probably wouldn't have been able to achieve this. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and uh, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were, being, uh, were beginning to be closed, they became very angry. So they're seeing that it's, it's, it's working. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Right? So notice that more opponents appeared that were not mentioned before. Right? Now we're talking about the Ammonites, the Ashdodites. So it's starting to gain momentum that this project is going to succeed and getting the attention of more opponents. Right? And they continue to mock them. Um... And not only to mock them, but now they decided that they were going to attack them. Okay, so there's like an escalation in the opposition, right? So sometimes we, you know, we start a project or we start doing something good, um, and then we start to get opposition, and then we pray and we ask God, please help me, so um, I can overcome the obstacles. And then what happens? The opposition increases, right? Like maybe a good example of this is when Moses. Uh, went to go speak to Pharaoh uh, about uh, about letting the people go, and Pharaoh decided to increase the quota of work um, by by not giving them straw to make the bricks. And so then the Israelites came, or the the yeah the the, the Hebrews they came and they 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 fought against Moses as we were better off before you came, before you went and spoke to Pharaoh. You know the work was actually easier. And you're coming to save us from the slavery, but you made everything more difficult, right? And Moses even turned to God and said, God, why did you even send me here? Like, uh, things were better off before I even came. So there was an escalation in the opposition. And an important thing to keep in mind is whenever there is an escalation to the opposition, that doesn't mean that God doesn't hear. And it doesn't mean that God is unaware, and it doesn't mean that God isn't working. It doesn't mean that God is silent. He knows very well what he is doing. And maybe the greater the opposition, the gl greater the glory when God qu quells it, right? Like when, when there is a when when the stakes are even higher, right? Then we see God working even more, so that we can not question in any way that wow, look at look at what God has done. Like again, back to the example of Moses. If Pharaoh had simply from the first time when when Moses went to Pharaoh, and he said, "Let my people go," and Pharaoh was like, "Okay," and then the people left, and that was it. Think about all the things we would have missed out on. We would have missed out on the ten plagues. We would have missed out on the crossing of the Red Sea. We would have missed out on all the way that God demonstrated his power and his love for Israel. Um, that they then remembered that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and not just them, but all the nations around them knew that the God of Israel is the one who freed them from Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and all of that. Certainly at the time, if you ask the people, you know, do you want Pharaoh to just let you go from the first time? Everyone would be like, yeah, that's what we want. But God's plan for it was no. Uh, he's going to be stubborn. 
And but because he is stubborn, I can show you more of myself, right? I can reveal more of myself to you because of the opposition. So opposition is not about like, oh, this opponent is stronger than God. This this problem is bigger than God. God is not hearing my prayer. No, opposition can be a way for God to demonstrate his power and his love for us even more, right? But it requires patience, right? And that's the thing. Moses had to have patience. The Hebrews had to have patience. Here Nehemiah had to have patience. He had to believe that even though there is escalation in the opposition, but that in the end, God is still with him and God can still grant him victory. And more importantly, that he doesn't give up in that moment. Again, to say, God, why haven't you helped us? I prayed to you, and now they're going to come and attack us. Why aren't you listening? And so on and so on, right? So, so th- th- that's an important point here to, to remember. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So two things now happening. Uh, Nehemiah continuing to pray to God, asking for God's deliverance, but he's also using his mind. We're like, okay, what can we do to protect ourselves, right? If we are now under threat of being attacked, okay, so we have to maybe increase our efforts. And we have to put a watch both day and night, whereas maybe before we were resting at night, now we have 24-hour shifts, okay, that everyone has to be awake at some point um, because we are wise in the way that we are dealing with the threats. We are not dismissing the threats. You know, like the people who are like, they say, uh, you know those people who dance with snakes, like when they 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 say uh, like we believe that God is gonna, you know, keep us from being harmed by the snakes, and so they they dance with poisonous snakes, believing like this is like like that's ridiculous, right? Right? Like 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 the goal the goal is to use your mind, like use your mind. God gave it to you, right? Use your mind. Don't put yourself in harm's way intentionally, and then think God is gonna protect me, right? They couldn't. They they didn't even think. Well, we're just gonna continue like we were not do anything different, and we trust that God is going to protect us. No, they, they thought. They said, okay, well, what is, th- what is within our ability, right? What is it that we can do? Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. So Judah here represents like the people, right? The Judah is not like an individual person. He's like the people are starting to grumble. The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build a wall. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So there's starting to be now people who are being affected by the threats, right? And we're seeing now, you know, at the beginning of a project, at the beginning of something, when people are the most energetic, when you feel like, okay, we can do it. But then, and then maybe toward the very end, when you're almost done, you're also kind of like, energetic and you know seeing the end goal kind of in view but that middle time the middle time where where you know you've been doing this for a long time but you're still still not anywhere near being complete that middle time is the hardest time right and maybe even you say that's the hardest time in life is the middle time that's why people have midlife crisis right because it's the middle time when you're young, you're still energetic, you have everything to look forward to, and you're happy, and you have many hopes and dreams about the future. When you're old, you're like, okay, I'm almost done. Like, you know, like, you know, I'm looking forward to heaven, okay? That middle time where you're like, I still have a long way to go, and it's difficult, and I don't know what's going to happen. I'm in a lot of pain, and I have a lot of fears and whatnot. I'm not as young as I used to be. I'm not as energetic as I used to be, but I also still have a, a lot left, right? And that's the time, even like in a race, where that can be the hardest time, 
is that middle time until you get that renewed re energy at the end. So that's where they are now. And so they're starting to say the strength of the laborers is failing. You know, we're not we're not as strong as we were at the beginning. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're weary of the work. But we still look and see there's still a lot of work left to do. We're not we're not right at the end, right? And then the adversaries are continuing to ramp up the rhetoric and they're saying um, we're going to essentially come and kill you in the middle of the night when you don't even know what's happening, right? So there's a lot of struggle here. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near came th uh, sorry so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came they told us 10 times from whatever place you turn they will be upon us right so the people are murmuring the people are saying there's no way we can escape the work is hard there's still a lot of rubbish everywhere we are in danger we are going to fail and they're starting to be like dissenting voices and you can know that at this point the people would go to who who would they go to to complain Nehemiah they're going to go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is now dealing with so many different things. He's dealing with like the actual engineering aspect of like the building. He's dealing with what the people are saying. He's dealing with the enemies. You know, he's dealing with maybe his own doubts and his own fears, right? And he's having to manage all of these things while at the same time always projecting that he has faith and that he's trusting and that that God is going to grant us victory over all these things and believe that and then Everything's going to turn out good because everyone's looking to him. And he now has to have patience with these people who are coming and not just dismiss them. Right? He can't just dismiss them and say, you guys don't know anything what you're talking about. Just get out of my sight. Right? Who, who did that and caused the big problem? One of the kings. Rehoboam. Rehoboam, when the people came to him and said, the work you have given us was too much, Rehoboam pretty much said, like, be quiet. I'm going to give you more work. Right? He was foolish. Like He didn't listen to the needs of the people. So Nehemiah would actually have to listen to the fears and the concerns of the people because they are his workers. If, 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 they, if they stop working, if they're, not, you know, if they're afraid, if they leave, if anything happens, then the whole project will fail. So he has to listen to them, and he has to sympathize and empathize with them, but then he also has to answer their fears, right? and he has to direct them again toward kind of the right path. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So Nehemiah's response was two things. He changed the plan in order to accommodate, again, there's fear and there's concern and they're going to kill us and all these things. And he addressed their, their fears in, in what he said. Okay? And he reminded them, why are we even doing this again? That's kind of the, the, the motivation that he had given at the very beginning when he convinced the people to begin to do this work. Right? He said to them, um, you fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Like He made them feel like, I'm not asking you to do some pet project of mine. I'm not coming to you and telling you I need you to work for me so that I can benefit. This is for your own benefit. This is for your family's benefit. This is for, 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 for you. To make the people realize that this is actually in their own interest to risk their lives in order to build this. Okay, That's one thing. Two, of course, that they will put their trust that God is the one who is going to protect them. Right, and he's the one who's going to allow them to to succeed. 
But also, he says, now we are going to have weapons, right? So we want to be feel safe, and we want to be able to protect ourselves if we are attacked. So we will have weapons in addition to the workers, uh, uh, like the people who are working, having the tools, right? And this, again, would address, address them. One thing I do want to mention is, sometimes from a leader's perspective, he doesn't agree with maybe the requests or the fears or the complaints of the people who are coming to him. But for the sake of showing them uh, that he cares about what they feel and he cares about their concerns, he might make concessions that he himself is not necessarily agreeing with simply for their own sake as long as it doesn't hinder the work. Like I'm not saying that's the case here. I'm not saying Nehemiah didn't, but I'm just thinking. Um, if Nehemiah thought to himself, you know, like God is going to protect us. We don't really need to have this and that maybe, you know, but he said for the sake of the people, I'm going to allow them to ha hold a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other hand. Maybe that's going to make them feel better. I, I don't know if that's the case, but I'm just speaking generally. Like sometimes we, we give people something that makes them feel good just for their own sake. Even we do this with children, right? Like child wants to have, you know, their stuffed animal with them. You know, for me, it's like uh, I'm not convinced that you need a stuffed animal, but if you want a stuffed animal, you can have it, right? Um, because it makes you feel good, okay? So sometimes we have to do that. We have to do things that make people feel good, even if we're not convinced, but for the sake of unity and for the sake of, of showing compassion and mercy to these people who, again, we need them, right? Like we, 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 need, we need them to work. And it happened... When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So, so God had made known to them all the details of what they were planning to do. And once they knew, what is it that the enemies did? It, it says their plot was br brought to nothing, right? They saw that the people were ready. They saw that they had weapons. They saw that they were on 24-hour shift. And they said, you know what? We can't attack them. Right, like we're not we're not in a place strong enough to attack them when they're now ready for us. So it goes back to the idea of like the devil. He tries to instill fear in us, but God gave us the authority to trample on him, and so everyone was able to go back to work, right, while still being alert. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Okay, now this was going to slow down the work, right? Because now you have half the people working and half the people protecting. But still, it was not something that, like, was discouraging to Nehemiah. He felt like we can still make progress, even though, again, the plan keeps changing. It's okay that the plan keeps changing. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked the construction and with the other held the weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So he had this system where if there were the enemies were to come, they would sound the trumpet um, in the place where the enemies are, and everyone would drop what they're doing, and they would go to, like, fight. Okay, so this was the role. And think about the kind of stress that is going to be on these people, right? Like, it was already difficult enough to be exhausted with working all the time. Now you've got 
people staying up all night. And you've got people continuing to work while holding the weapons. And psychologically, the fear of being attacked at any time. And now you are being called not just to be a construction worker, but to be uh, a soldier, right, at any time. And yet all the people, they still stuck with this. They still followed Nehemiah. And, and in the end, um, God granted them um, success. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and, and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. So it's pretty much saying we were working nonstop, um, and this is what had to be done in order to to do the work. So this is another principle is there are some things that are so important that you you have to take the attitude of like we will do whatever it takes. Right? Like whatever it takes. You know, sometimes people come with excuses. Um says, you know, I'm I'm too busy or I'm too tired or I don't have this or I want this or I would rather do this. Um but for the things that are really important, right, that you must succeed in, you you find this uh, motivation and determination, which is whatever it takes. And that's what the people here were doing. And that's what Nehemiah was able to instill in them, is that we will do whatever it takes for however long it takes until the project is done because we believe that this is what is important and has to happen. You know, they didn't say, well, we are so tired, um, so we're just going to go on a vacation. Well, yeah, maybe they all needed a vacation. I'm sure that they did, right? But they didn't allow themselves one because the work was so important. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, in our own lives, what are the things that we would say are so important that we would do whatever it takes, regardless of personal discomfort or inconvenience or suffering, in order to attain them? You know, and, and it comes to my mind, you know, when St. Paul is speaking about struggling against sin, which he says, you have not yet, you know, strived to bloodshed, right, fighting against sin. Meaning, when 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 we're thinking about what is it that we should be doing in order to protect ourselves from sin, he said, "Well, did you get to the point of shedding your own blood?" You know, like like we make excuses. We're like, "Well, this was too hard for me," or you know, "I couldn't change this," or you know, whatever the case may be. But but the the standard that God is putting for us to like stop sin and struggle against sin is whatever it takes, do whatever it takes, even to the point of bloodshed. Right, so there's very little that I can respond to that, right? Just as here, we see that Nehemiah is doing the maximum amount of work that can be done, and all the people are doing the maximum amount of work that can be done, and then then the end they're leaving it to God for the victory, for the success, and and God granted success. But if they were at every step of the way, be like, you know, what? I'm not willing to work this much. I'm not willing to to do this. I'm just gonna go back to my house. I'm gonna go back to, you know, wherever I came from because it's not worth it, then no, maybe they wouldn't have been successful, right? Because God wasn't going to do it without their cooperation. So this is um, this is where we are now uh, in the book of Nehemiah. Does anyone have any questions about what we studied? Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. We can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing in everything that we do. And we ask, O God, that you give us a sense of determination and focus and not to be distracted in our life, seeking after, O Lord, what is good and what is important. 
We ask, O oh God, that you bless us and you give us direction and guidance and you help us to overcome the opposition. And whenever the devil stands up against us and tries to intimidate us or to cause us to fear, that we trust in you, O oh Lord, and know that you are able to overcome him. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from the evil one in Christ Jesus our Lord for thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever men the love of God the Father the grace of the only begotten Son our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ the communion the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all go in peace the peace of the Lord be with you all Amen and also with your spirit